Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. So let's pray for Jay before we start. Let's pray. Okay. Okay. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the man that you've created here. Father, we just pray that... um, you give him the wisdom that you imparted on Solomon. May you give him the Holy Spirit just uh, indwell in him. And may your words flow through him. And Heavenly Father, we just thank you that um, you've given him the courage and the boldness to stand here today to proclaim your word, to proclaim your goodness, and, the, and just the faith that he has to stand up here and, and, and do that, Father. And Father God, we just thank you for all that you do, and we pray that you open the hearts and the minds of those who are here listening today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so last week, um, I listened to Nick's sermon because I was gone at Soul Fest, which was really epic, Uh, really fun. I didn't wear the shorts because they make me uncomfortable. (laughs) Right, Cole? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so he... uh, for those of you who weren't there, he preached on um, the story of Solomon. He covered quite a bit of his life, uh, but just kind of a quick recap. He talked about um, where God asked Solomon, you know, ask me for anything. He said, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asked for something that most of us probably wouldn't have really thought to ask for, even though we think we probably would have, uh, which was wisdom. So, Quick sum up, God gives Solomon great wisdom, says he was like the smartest man on the planet um, to this day, and so that's pretty crazy. Um, I say um a lot when I'm on stage. I don't do it when I'm reviewing, though. So God's pleased by Solomon's request for wisdom and that he didn't ask for um, riches and fame. So since he didn't ask for riches and fame, God gave him wisdom with riches and fame, kind of like bonus, and that kind of meant Solomon became the richest, uh, wisest guy on the planet, uh, kind of the epitome of what any of us could ever hope to be. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is kind of like a journal that Solomon wrote called Ecclesiastes. Um, it's not a super well-known book and not a, not a very uh, popular book. Uh, you'll see why. I'm about to ruin your day. I'll try at least. Um, So he wrote this journal, um, and I believe he probably wrote it later on in life as he talks about his magnificent reign. He looks back on everything that he's ever accomplished um, as king of Jerusalem. And as we begin reading this, we need to understand why he writes the way he does. Solomon is the richest, smartest um, guy on the planet, and what he does is he explores every aspect of life and pushes it to the absolute limit. For example... He spends his early years accumulating extensive knowledge on every possible topic you could pretty much imagine till there was pretty much nothing else to learn. Um, When he became bored of being the smartest guy on the planet, he decided to explore the party scene. Um, What else do you do? You can't get smarter. You're going to sit in your study and look at the wall. It would be depressing. So he's like, I'm I'm not really satisfied with being the smartest guy, so I'm going to... Check out over here with all the stupid people who 
just party, party it up their whole lives. Um, so that's what he does. He ends up hosting massive parties um, for up to 15 to 20,000 people. To give a little bit of perspective for like three of you that are in here, those of us who were at Soul Fest, I think there was what, 4,000 4, people there? And it seemed like a ton of people, like a massive amount of people. There was 15 to 20,000 people at these parties that he hosted. Uh, I don't even know if most of us can really picture that many people in one group, but that's how many people he had at his temples. He eventually got bored of the parties, too, because he had them pretty much every single day of the week, and they even got old, which most of us probably can't imagine. The parties were, he says, they were a blast, they were fun, but they eventually lost their luster. When he got bored of the parties, he ended up marrying 600 women and 300 concubines, and then proceeded to build 900 houses for all of them. So he, he had a ambitious side, I guess. You know, he, he liked building 900 houses for 900 wives. I don't even want to talk about that. Um, let's just, yeah, yeah, let's just, let's not talk about that. I'm going to get something thrown at me. Um, then he built, yeah, so he built houses for all of them. Then he planted a forest. He, he got tired of the palace gardens and decided, hey, uh, why don't I just plant a, a forest? Um, and then, you know, because where they lived, there wasn't a lot of water exactly where he planted them, I guess. He ended up digging these massive craters into the ground, channeling the Jordan River water into those craters and making lakes to water the trees. So they're still there to this day. If you want, you can go check them out, but they're in the Middle East, so you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. I'm not sending you over there. But if you don't believe me, go check them out. They're called the Craters of Solomon. Um, so these are only a few of the insane things that Solomon did, like the things that we really probably can't imagine. I was going to spend the half of my sermon talking about the grandeur of his kingdom, but I don't have time for that. Um, so the point is he lived it up. Any accomplishments you will ever make in your whole life is microscopic in comparison to what, what he did in his lifetime. Um, so Ecclesiastes is basically a journal of his life. He's going to look back at it existentially, which means he's going to look back at it and ask the burning question, why am I here? What is this all for? And why does everything just keep getting old? He keeps attacking all these things and trying, trying new things, and they always get old eventually. So he's asking it, looking back at everything that he's ever done existentially, asking the question, why am I here? And why doesn't this seem to satisfy me? Um, he's, yeah, so he's going to look at the meaning of life specifically under the sun. So if you'll turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're just going to jump right into the text. So he's, uh, he's going to give us... Quickly, he's actually just going to sum up the meaning of life right away, like in the, in the very beginning. Um, he's, there, there's something we should probably know, really quick note, is he was um, part, he did something that was strictly kind of like a Hebrew idea. We don't have this concept in our, um, in our culture, really. It, he, he was what they called the koaleth. He, he refers to himself as the, word, the, the preacher. That's what he says, the preacher. Um, but what the Hebrew word meant was somebody who would have a conversation with themselves in front of a whole bunch of people, and then they'd argue at one topic 
from different perspectives. They come at it from different perspectives and then they would come to a cumulative answer. Um, so they come to a practical conclusion. So that's kind of like weird for us. Um, if you've met my dad, you know he kind of figures things out by talking to himself and a lot of people are just like, what is wrong with him? But he's like, what are you talking? I don't know, what you, well, shut up. Like it's, he talks to himself sometimes to work things out. He, he doesn't know it, but he does. Um, it freaks me out sometimes. I think there's other people in the house and I can't see them. So he does this and he comes, he's, he's gonna look at life from one perspective at the beginning of this and it's, um, he's gonna sum it up in one word. And this word is used a number of times, like a number of times throughout this book, but we're not reading the whole book so you won't see that. Meaningless. That is his sum up of life from the first perspective that he looks at it. We're off to a good start, eh? <laughs> okay. Actually, mine doesn't say meaningless. It says vanity. Um, and I like vanity. I like to say vanity better because it's easier than saying meaningless of meaninglessnesses. So we're just going to go with vanity, but that's what it means. It, it means smoke. The Hebrew word hevel means smoke. Vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain? from all his toil at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens back to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To where all the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What, we, what has been is what will be, and what, we, what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Whew. So, um, that I had to read several times before I even kind of understood what the heck all of that meant. Like a lot of that is metaphor and sometimes that's what deters me from reading the Bible is because is metaphors can be really hard to understand what the heck the person's talking about. But they are really important. So um, a little bit of commentary is the, the person who has experienced more of anything than any of us will ever experience or can even comprehend sex, alcohol, parties, amazing food, tons of money, massive accomplishments. He just said, everything is meaningless. So, if you're having trouble understanding the depth of what he's saying, I'm going to try to bring it down to earth. He, he, yeah, I'm going to try to bring it down to earth by just telling you a couple of stories. Um, so this is kind of what meaningless might look like for you or somebody that you know or um, people in our culture today. So meaningless might look like a girl who always has a boyfriend. No matter how many guys she dates or who she dates or how many times she gets her heart broken, no matter how many times her friends tell her, don't do it, you're going to get hurt, he's going to hurt you, she still ends up in a relationship and she always is left broken and empty, crying, 
many of her friends laugh at her and, and talk to each other about her behind her back and say stuff like, I wonder how long it's going to be before her next relationship or before this one that she's in right now ends. They laugh about it. They make fun of it. Um, and there's something deeper than, than just placing bets on how long her relationships are going to last. They don't see the fact that she's desperately grasping for affection. And she, she'll take whatever she can get. She's desperate for the feeling of somebody thinks I'm valuable. Somebody thinks I'm worth fighting for. Somebody loves me. There's, there's something inside of her that is starving for fulfillment of what she's longing for. And that's not just girls. If we're honest, that's guys too. But every single time she's left crying on the floor because each of those guys that she's with, even though she thinks they're going to be the one, they're going to fill me, they're going to satisfy me, every single one of them fails to bring her what she needed. But still she runs to them, starving for affection. And she lives in an endless cycle of repeated heartbreak and emotional starvation. I, there's a mother who spends her whole life working for her kids. From sunup to sundown, she makes food, drives her kids around, buys food, makes more food, does dishes. And at the end of the day, she sits on the end of her bed, buries her head in her hands, and, and wonders, is this all my life is ever going to amount to? Is this all that I'm ever going to experience? And it gets old. It might have been fun when she had her first kid or her second, but it got old. And I know I'm not a mother, so I'm trying to understand. And I'm trying to look at this from different perspectives, like, like Solomon does throughout his book. Her heart sinks with the heaviness of the monotony of everyday life. And she's starving for something more. She feels that all of her weariness is for nothing and meaningless. Yet she knows that the next day she's going to have to wake up and do it all over again. And I know a guy who is so consumed with his goals, who is so consumed with making this much money, getting this new car, buying this specific house, but no matter how much he achieves, it's never enough. He gets the money and the car, and immediately begins chasing more money, a better car, a bigger house, bigger, bigger, bigger. Always trying to ramp up what he's going for, ramp up his goals. And a lot of us say, set big goals, go for the big dreams. But this, this is the reality of what this actually looks like. This is what Solomon means when he says meaningless. Just stay with me. Despite his backbreaking work, he tosses and turns at night and wonders what all of his stuff is going to mean when he dies. He knows it's meaningless. He knows that when he's dead, it's gone. He doesn't get to take it with him. But he, he dulls that feeling of meaninglessness, that, that sinking feeling, by pulling out his phone and looking at pictures of girls and the next car he's going to get and the next house he's going to get. And he, he dulls his appetite for something more by thinking of the next thing he's going to achieve. And he knows, he's been told, that it's all meaningless. But he, 
he still chases it. He never looks deeper. He pulls out his phone and soothes himself. Like, I just said that, never mind. That's, <laughs> it doesn't matter how much he soothes himself, it comes back hungrier. It eats at his insides. There's something there that torments him. There's something that gnaws at all of our guts and causes us to be unsatisfied. If we're honest, you know what I'm talking about. Every single one of you do. So this is what Solomon means by meaningless. Like I said, the word in Hebrew is hevel, and it means smoke. Vapor. He's saying that we chase our desires, we can chase our desires till our hearts are content, but they'll never be content. We'll always be chasing. He calls it chasing after the wind, grasping after vapor. This is what that means back in where I just read from Ecclesiastes when it says, all rivers run to the sea, but the sea is never full. It's evaporating just as quick as the rivers pour into it. And that's our lives. So, we're forced to ask a question of why is it that no matter what we have or how much of it we have, we're still unsatisfied. Why is that? What is the thing that eats at us until we feed it? And why can't we be satisfied? So Ecclesiastes starts by showing you you're hungry and everything that you're doing to try to feed yourself is pointless. He starts by disabling us and showing us straight to the heart how totally worthless everything that we're chasing is because death is coming. Told you I'm going to ruin your day. You're going to die. Every single one of us, unless Christ comes. But unless he comes today or tomorrow or soon, I mean, you're all going to die. Death is coming for us. And he forces you to look at that in the face, which most of us don't want to do. We try to distract ourselves with our phones and with our goals. Most of us don't want to look at that. And he forces you to look at the gritty reality of that so that you can at least at least do something about it instead of live blindly. Later on in the book, he says, I saw that wisdom was better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness because the, the people who are wise have eyes in their head while the fool walks around blind. But death is coming from both of them. That's meaningless. It doesn't matter if I'm wise. It doesn't matter if I'm stupid. I've tried both things. They both end up the same way. <laughs> and everything that I get is someday probably going to go to my moron son. <laughs> and he's going to screw up, or his son is, or his daughter and son is, I don't know. So, this is Solomon's diagnostic of that thing inside of you that makes you hungry for a sense of progression and meaning. He diagnoses it and puts his finger on it and says, this is what that is. Because most of us don't really know what that is. We, just, we know we're hungry, but we don't know why. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. And yes, we've skipped over a bit of stuff, but this is a, a big book for one sermon. So go back and read it. <laughs> it says, pretty simply, it's just verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. We're going to focus on that. 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the first part of this verse that says, he has made everything beautiful in its time, refers back to something that comes right before this that we don't have time to cover today, but it's the famous part of Ecclesiastes. Um, most of you, if you have heard anything about Ecclesiastes, have heard this part. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There's a season, turn, turn, turn. There's a time for everything and a season for everything under the heavens. And what I didn't know until I started studying this was I did not get that. And I've known about that part of Ecclesiastes for years. And I think most of us also do not understand what that is saying. It is an incredibly life-changing thing, that one verse. But the reason for why it's famous is wrong. I don't have time to cover that today. We're, we're going to skip over that. But I would love to talk to any of you who do want to talk about what I've found out about this thing that I never really understood, and I suspect most of you don't either. Um, but don't come and ask me about it until you've read it yourself. <sighs> All right, so where were we? Yeah, so the next part is he has put eternity into man's heart. So the, the thing Solomon is saying here is critical because this is where he identifies that thing that lets you know you need more. What he says is, that all of these unquenchable desires are coming from one central point, something we all have in common. So let's just figure out what it is. And the crazy, the crazy thing is about this thing that we all have in common that's making us hungry, that thing that's gnawing at our guts, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It was put there for a reason. God has placed eternity into your heart. So that thing he's talking about, he calls eternity. Most of us have heard he's put eternity into our hearts, but never put a lot of thought into what that means, what the implications of that are. Um, so we're going to talk about that today. That's going to be our main focus. Um, what he is saying is that the reason you can't be satisfied by stuff, affection, hard work, pleasure, you name it, is because the hunger inside of you is infinite. You weren't built to be satisfied by finite things. And finite things can be ideas. They don't have to be physical things, money and cars. It can be love. It's, it's anything is finite. Every single thing, that's what he's saying, meaningless, finite. It's gone soon. Vapor. So, um, you were built to be filled by something eternal. Nothing... No, I'm not saying that. Um, though most of us <laughs> don't understand that, our souls remember what they were made for. It remembers the Garden of Eden. It remembers what it was like before the fall. And even though we, most of us don't understand that, most of us don't, none of us can consciously remember the Garden and what that was like, but our souls, there's a piece of us inside of us that remember what it was like before we were separated from God. That's really big. That's a really, really big thing. So, this is the sobering reality that should cause us to smarten up. Nothing that you desire when getting it will ever quench that desire. It doesn't matter. 
If you get exactly what you want, you'll never be satisfied. Ecclesiastes is very clear on this. Getting what you desire isn't going to quench that desire. It will require you to fill it back up over and over and over again because your hunger, your desire is eternal. That explains a lot and that makes me feel a little bit better because now I at least know what the problem is, right? I know what the problem is. I've been trying to throw things and fill myself up with things that aren't eternal. And my hunger is eternal, so none of that's ever going to do anything for me. These are double-sided. I keep forgetting where I am. So fill in the blank. If what you want is money, you'll need to get more and more money to satisfy that desire. Sex, same thing. Approval, same thing. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Solomon's like, you guys, you're like, oh, this doesn't work. I'm going to try this. You, this doesn't work. I'm going to try this. I've tried it all. It doesn't work. <laughs> I'm not mad. I'm not scaring any of you, am I? <laughs> this, this is just really, really, this has changed my life. So when I'm excited, don't freak out or do freak out and make me feel a little better. I need some water. So anything that you fill yourself with is meaningless. How do we find satisfaction then? What is life for? Well, the New Testament actually has a lot to say about back when, um, when God built us and why we can't be satisfied. Because it says God put it there, so let's go and figure out why, why this is. So turn to Colossians 1, 15 through 16. And this might not make any sense when I first read it, but we're going to tear it apart after. It should make sense. So this is Paul writing to the church in Colossae, but that's the church in Colossae that doesn't really have anything to do with this. This is, this is Paul making a statement on what created us, who created us, and, and this is actually going to answer our question of what life is for. And when we know that, we, we can know what's going to satisfy us. Okay, you there? Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God is pleased to dwell, God was pleased to dwell, to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, so this is, uh, this is big too. Just give me a second. I need to figure myself out here. This New Testament scripture points to the ultimate reality. So Solomon looked at it from the perspective of under the sun at the beginning. And he concluded that everything under this sun is meaningless. What he doesn't say directly is 
When he says under the sun, he's excluding anything above the sun. He's talking about just our world. And he, he's looking at, at it from basically an atheist's perspective where you know, there's no objective truth, no objective meaning, nothing put us here with intention. We just showed up here and everything just follows this cycle. The earth stays, but we live, we die, the people behind us live, we die, nobody remembers anybody. It's chaos and it's totally ridiculous. And, and he, he says it's, it's just madness, it's ridiculous, it's, it's funny almost, but it's depressing at the same time. Um, but this is the ultimate reality, looking at it from how Solomon is going to conclude it, but we're going to look at it from what, what uh, Paul said, because that's a little bit more hands-on, direct, and it's post-cross, um, it's after Christ, so he, we can see it from a different side of the cross. Um, it points to the ultimate reality, the meaning Solomon has been looking for, all things were made by and for Christ. This breaks out of the silly idea that we're all prone to believing. That Christ came into existence about 2,000 years ago as a little baby. That's a pretty silly idea. He did come as a baby. I'm not trying to disprove that by any means. The reality is, though, and most of us tend to forget this, that Christ is the creator of the universe. He is a mastermind behind time and space. He is the white heat who breathed the stars into, into space. That's a cool line, isn't it? I had to say that. Um, he is the one who, when he built man, he placed eternity into flesh. That's huge. Eternity into flesh. Animals are flesh. They, don't, they aren't like us. That's what separates us from creation. We had eternity placed into our hearts. And that might seem like kind of an ambiguous idea. And it's really hard for me to be able to communicate the meaning of that in one sermon. Because it's taken me weeks to figure that out for myself. <sighs> he wired us in such a way that we cannot possibly be satisfied by anything except for by something eternal. That's the one thing that can satisfy us. It has to be something eternal because there's a, basically an eternal hole in us that needs to be filled by something eternal. You've heard the, uh, the Christian saying, uh, you've got a, a God-shaped hole in your heart or something. Um, I never really got that. I thought it was kind of funny. But, but this is, is basically what it's saying So he created us, an eternal God created us for the purpose of bringing him glory. Well, that makes sense, but what about me? Do I just go on living and, and trying to please him? How does that fix my problem of the hunger I feel? Just living to, to glorify some huge being that I don't really understand. It makes me feel a little bit like an ant. You get stepped on someday. <laughs> but here's the crazy thing. The thing that, that blows that idea out of the water. God actually built us to please him. But because of how he wired us, 
we are incapable of pleasing him if we aren't satisfied in him. So when Christ came to give us life to the full, this is what he's talking about. Okay. Who here has heard of, of eternal life? Has anybody, oh no, who here has not heard of eternal life? That's a better question. There isn't a single hand up. So if there is somebody here and is, feels like they're going to be judged by a bunch of Christians for having their hand up saying, I don't know what eternal life is, then that's fine. But as far as I can tell by the hands, all of you guys have heard, what that, heard of that. Who here feels comfortable in their definition of what that is? Who thinks that if I ask them to come up here on this stage, they could define it? If your hand's not up, you better get those hands up if you actually understand what that is. I'm serious. Do you feel comfortable? I'm not going to call you up. Don't worry. I was going to, but seeing as you guys are all a bunch of chickens. Put your hand up if you feel comfortable in your definition of eternity. Okay, that's a little better. The thing is, and this is true for me, I have heard of eternal life ever since I was a little kid, but it hasn't been until the last couple years, and I've said I was a Christian ever since I was a little kid. I grew up in church, but it wasn't until the last couple years that I even began to understand what the heck that means. You know, when you hear something ever since you're little, and then you get to a point where it just, it goes into your ear and out the other because you don't really understand, or you've heard it, it's like a sound instead of a meaning. That eternal life that he offers is directly directed straight towards the hunger, the eternal hunger in our hearts. Eternal life for eternal hunger. So the whole gospel is tied to what Solomon is trying to say here. There's a hunger in our hearts that needs to be satisfied. And eternal life isn't just some ethereal bliss up in the clouds, we're, we're going to go someday when we die. You're going to have to see the spirit in the sky. That's, I hate that song. I really, I tried to like it. I'm sorry, Andrea. I'm really sorry. It's, it's only because of this book that I now hate that song. Um, eternal life isn't something to be entered into when we die. It's now. It's now, there's a slew of things said in the New Testament that say that, and most of us have heard it our whole lives, so we don't even register that into our consciousness when, it, when we hear it. This is the answer to the pivotal question of why am I here? All things were created by and for Christ. That's the, that's the important thing right now is for him. Because we're asking, what is life for? We are created for Christ. He offers us eternal life to satisfy the eternity that he wove into our hearts. This should excite you. And if it doesn't excite you, then like me, like I often am right now, you are blind to the fact, to the immensity of what I'm saying right now. I'm saying this as if, you know, it might sound like I, I have this all together and this is always in my head, but this is not 
something I'm perfect in. But if this doesn't get you excited right now, thinking about this right now, then you're, you're not hearing what I'm saying. You're not hearing what Solomon is saying, what Christ is saying by, I came to give you life and that more abundantly. You can be satisfied. For those of you who, like me, have been like, what's life for? This is all pointless. Why even get out of bed? You can be satisfied. I don't care who you are. I don't care what it is that you feel you're missing. Christ put that hunger there, that desire, whatever it is, so that he and he alone can satisfy that. I know you guys have heard that too. So I'm just praying that you are hearing what I'm saying. Because that, that is, he and he alone satisfies it. We spend our whole lives running around trying to find something that's going to fill this freaking gap inside of us and make, make us satisfied for once in our lives. But all of those desires that we chase are branches off of one root desire that we were given upon creation. One desire. And if that one desire is fulfilled, then every other desire that we have is satisfied. Dad's been saying this to me for weeks when I've been sitting on the couch like, oh, what's the meaning of life? Ecclesiastes, you put me into an existential crisis. He's been like, Jay, you are the most oppressing human being on the planet and you don't see what the heck I'm trying to tell you. Yeah, I, see, and this is, this is how it's worked in my life. I'm sitting there having an existential crisis and dad's like, Christ satisfies that. That hunger that you feel, that, that, ugh, that sustained note. He resolves it. Only musicians are going to get what I say when I said that, but he resolves it. And until he does, we're incapable of living for him, trying to work and work and work and work to the point where we feel, oh, God's pleased with me. He's never going to work. Find your rest and satisfaction in God and work is an outpouring of that. Pleasing God is an outpouring of fullness in him. When the eternity in your heart is satisfied, you'll be free to treat your stuff like stuff instead of clinging to it for comfort and satisfaction and feeling like I need this thing to, to make me feel important or feel like I'm worth I have a, something is worth living for. What do you have that's worth living for? So blame. When you when you're freed by this, you can treat your stuff like stuff. You can use it for what you need to use it for. You can give it away generously. You're free. Because you no longer have that clinging, that nagging feeling of, I need this, that made you greedy. 
with it because you no longer, you're no longer clinging to it to satisfy you. You no longer look at it at people and think, what can I get from them? What can I get from them? <sighs> because you're already satisfied. You don't need people to satisfy. You don't need stuff. Yeah, we need each other. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's one satisfaction that needs to be fulfilled first. Everything else is a gift. It's grace. Read Romans 8. Write that down right now. Read Romans 8. That talks about life in the spirit. And this is what it means. Find the connection there. I'm not going to give it to you. Find it. A person who is satisfied by Christ can enjoy good food, good drink, good friends, good music, deep love, hard work, the sun on their face, and the cool of the rain. Yeah, I wrote that all down and had to memorize it. (laughs) You can enjoy life. Because you're not trying to use those things to fill eternity that eternity in you is already filled so you're free to just enjoy enjoy that stuff and be generous with it and find pleasure in your work because you know that everything you are doing that's that's kind of what the beginning where it says there's a time for everything means i just i said i wasn't going to talk about it <laughs> i got 5 minutes There's a time for everything, and that means God has given you. He, there's a time where he gives you something. Sometimes you love it, it's awesome, and you want to take, we treat it like, like a buffet. I want, I want a time to embrace. Time to refrain from embracing? It depends on the person, how they smell. <laughs> I, want, I want a time to kill and a time to heal. I'll usually take healing, but you know, a little bit of killing is okay sometimes. Sometimes I'll take a little bit of that. Um, I need to read this because I don't even remember. A time to be born, a time to die. I'd rather be born. I don't really want to die. Time to plant, a time to be, or t- a time to pluck up. Planting's cool. Plucking is work for no reason. That's just that's not true. Um, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. I'd much rather be laughing, unless it's laughing till you're weeping. A time to mourn. The time to dance. I'd rather dance. And that goes on for a little bit longer, but that, what that is saying isn't, there's a time for you to do this and there's a time for you to do that. It's saying there's a time that God gives these things to you. These are seasons that God gives to you, gifts that God gives to you, even the hard stuff, which is extremely unpopular. A person who sees life through these lenses and is satisfied in Christ can even rejoice and understand that even in the painful parts of life, the hard parts of life, those go through the hands of the same God who gave you the blessings. It doesn't mean God is attacking you or, like Job said, um, crushing you. But nothing happens without his permission. And to say that it does is blasphemy. So challenge that. It's not me saying that, it's the Bible. Don't. <laughs> okay. Um, 
We can enjoy the depth of emotion in joy and in pain. We get to experience depth of emotion. We get to drink deeply of life. We can cry hard and own it. And we can pour our hearts out to each other and experience the joy in the midst of the suffering with each other. Because Jesus transcends the pain. I never really understood how Paul could go through what he did, being beaten almost to death and thrown into prison. And the other disciples. They're, they're out preaching and they're told, don't you preach that again. They beat them, throw them back in prison and say, you're free now, but don't you say that again. And they're like, do whatever you think is right. We're just, we can't help but say what we've seen, so we're just going to come over here and, and, and preach a little bit more. So they start preaching. They're grabbed, whipped, beaten, thrown in prison. And they're like, yes! They're rejoicing. Yeah! I got beaten for Christ! <laughs> how do you rejoice in that? Like, how can you find any kind of pleasure in having the flesh torn off your back? And your eyeball stabbed or something. Like they went through what we would say is hell on earth and they sang the whole way. <laughs> that is something I want. That's something that I don't, I don't always know if I have. And that should, that should make you think, do you have that? That makes me think, do I have that? Like, do I have that kind of, satisfaction in Christ so that I'm so satisfied in him that it, even that satisfaction even transcends the pain that I might go through for him. The book of the martyrs, read that. <laughs> Man, it's, it's insane. <laughs> but that's something I want. I want satisfaction in him to the point where it transcends everything else in life, the good and the bad. So, it's a hope that doesn't disappoint. Romans 5. Read that. Write that down. That's, that's probably my favorite spot in the New Testament. Romans 5. The whole chapter. There's an eternal hunger in your heart. Christ can satisfy it. Do you trust him? That's my question for myself and for you guys. All I want you guys to take home is he satisfies. Whatever I'm chasing now can be satisfied by him. That's not the prosperity gospel. That's not saying he's going to give you whatever you want. That, that's saying he's going to satisfy you. He's going to satisfy that eternal hunger to the point where you don't need that stuff. And if you get it, awesome. It's a gift from him. If you don't get it, you don't need it. He satisfies that. That's what dad's been saying to me. And it wasn't until the past couple weeks where my eyes were even open to that. And I know that I can say that to you till the cows come home and you won't hear what I'm saying unless God opens up your hearts, your hearts to it. There's an eternal hunger in your heart.
Christ can satisfy. Do you trust him? Let's pray. Dear God, I, you have worked wonders in my heart through just studying this and you've opened my eyes to things that I can't even put into words. So no matter how eloquently I speak, I can't communicate what you've showed me unless you show them that truth through your spirit, through the lenses of Christ. I, I love these people. This is my family. And it breaks my heart to see all of us chasing things that we will never be satisfied with. It breaks my heart to see us wasting our time. And and never even bothering to look at the fact that death is coming. We have a limited time here and and we need to stop wasting our time chasing things that won't satisfy us, chasing the wind. You satisfy us. Eternal life starts now. I pray that my words have fallen heavy on the hearts of this family here. And I pray that you continue to drive the reality of who Christ is home to us. Let the gospel call go out and let it ring in the hearts and resound with people. That's my one prayer for today. In your precious and holy name, amen. I love you guys.